you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11 will be our text this morning. If you want to read together with me, Scripture says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks you why you are doing this, say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, (coughs) What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them, Exactly what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before those who had followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. And when he had looked at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can come before you and spend time in your word. God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, that your word would find a fruitful soil within our heart where it can take root, where it can grow. God, that we would recognize we are not called to change your word, but your word is there to change us. God, I pray that we would be men and women desiring as a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to live lives consistent with what that looks like. And God, we pray that you would just meet us here this morning and that you would make your scripture alive to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we have a familiar portion of Scripture. <clears throat> we have the triumphal entry. Uh, it's not Palm Sunday, but we're going to do it anyways. And as we come to this section of Scripture, there's just a lot of things that that are going on in it. I don't want us to miss it. I don't want us to, to, to miss the... The symbolism, I don't want us to miss the things that are going on. Because sometimes when we come to sections of scripture we're familiar with, we, we don't hear as closely. We don't see as well what it is that, that God is laying out for us. So as we begin in Mark 11, verse 1, we start with Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Now, depending on whose timeline you go by, we are somewhere in the neighborhood of four days from the cross. This last portion of, of the Gospel of Mark is going to be all about his, the last week. The last week uh, as we see in the life of Christ. We saw last time that Jesus was setting his face like flint. He had a desire, unquenchable desire to get to Jerusalem. 
And the other thing that I think it's interesting for us to consider as we look at the Scripture is the reality that over and over and over again, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, we have heard Jesus heal people. We have heard Jesus cast out demons. We have heard Jesus do a number of things by which people want to glorify Him and worship Him and praise Him. And Jesus has told them all the same thing. Shh. Don't say nothing. Don't say nothing. And... Shining light on the reason why that is, is Palm Sunday. You guys have heard it, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. See, there was a particular day God had made. Way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. When we see the the fall of mankind and we see God standing before Adam who blamed Eve and Eve who blamed the serpent. Right? Everybody let the... The, the, the stone rolled down to the devil, to the serpent. And the Lord says to the serpent, well, because you did this, you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust all days of your life. And I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. And that's kind of an interesting prophecy. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum. In Genesis 3.16, it's the first mention of the gospel. On that day, when God the Father spoke, He was already telling the story of the day that the Lord had made. When God would redeem mankind. When the seed of the woman, the only child born of a virgin, the Son of God, who comes into the world to be a sacrifice for sin, born to die on a particular day. Way back then, that day was set. It's not like random things occurred and then God said, okay, I don't know, let's look a bit. Okay, the timeline's starting to look good, it's going to be then. No, God said it back then. He said it. He laid it out so that the destruction of... The, the fall, what the fall destroyed, way back in Genesis, its, it's uh, redemption was set in stone. And Jesus, as He goes through His ministry, one, He meets pe- person after person, He touches their life, He does incredible things, but He says, no, it's not the day yet to declare me Messiah. That day is coming up. Sir Robert Anderson believed it was April 6, 32 A.D. In fact, he wasn't Sir Robert Anderson always. He was uh, part of, of uh, uh, what's that place where Scotland Yard. And I was going to say Stockton Yard, but that wasn't right. He was part of Scotland Yard. He, he took the, the prophecies of Daniel 9, we'll look at it in a, in a little while, and he came up with a formula, a very intense formula, to come up with the day in which Messiah was to be named. It's interesting because the Lord calls the people accountable to know the day. To know the day. This is it. He's turned his face toward Jerusalem. Ultimately, what I see here is, is this incredible act of submission to God's will. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Therefore, when he, Jesus Christ, had come into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. 
In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. All those goats and bulls of the past. But I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Jesus coming to do that will. So what's the situation? Look at verse 1. Here's the situation. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. So there's several things that we know from from verse 1 and from some of the other gospel accounts. One, we know that this is a Sunday. He had spent the Sabbath in Bethany. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. He couldn't come to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day because you couldn't travel two miles. That was beyond the, the, the framework of traveling on a Sabbath day's journey. So you couldn't go two miles. So he stays in Bethany. We're going to read about it as like a, a parenthetical briefing in Mark 14. What happened on that night? You remember when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus? They complain. The disciples complain about this costly ointment being placed on him, and Jesus saying, the poor you have with you always, but she does this for my burial. All of that happened the night before. It happened that Sabbath before. Now, Sunday, he's on his way. Now, a lot of people struggle over the, the geography. You have Bethany two miles away. If, you, if you're standing on the, uh, in Jerusalem, and you look... Out the eastern gate, you see a mountain. That's the Mount of Olives. It's, it's not very far away. On the other side of the Mount of Olives, up and over the top, is Bethany. So if you go as the crow flies, uh, Bethpage is not in the, in the direct line. But nobody goes as the crow flies. We all know that, right? They didn't have planes back then. They couldn't just go a straight line. And I don't know about you, but I stand on a mountain and I look for... An, for an opportunity to walk up or an opportunity to go sideways, I'll take the sideways every time. So they're looking, they're sitting there at Bethany, they go south. As they go south, that brings them around to Bethpage. They pass through Bethpage. Bethpage is where we're going to see them uh, gather a donkey uh, and a colt, two animals that are going to come to to uh, to carry Jesus Christ. So And they're going to bring that around. So they're headed to Jerusalem. And they find themselves in Bethpage. In Matthew 21, 1 and 2, this is, where we, this is how we know this is where they get the, the donkey. It says, Now, <clears throat> when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and said, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. So, Bethpage, they're, they're at, in verse 1, they're at Bethpage. They're headed to Jerusalem. They're almost on the road that winds down. So when you guys come with me to Jerusalem next, next uh, what is it, November? When we go in 2016, you'll have an opportunity to stand on the Temple Mount, to look at the Eastern Gate, to see the road coming down from the Mount of Olives, the exact road, the exact path that Jesus came as He came on Palm Sunday, down through the Eastern Gate and to the Temple Mount. So you have an opportunity to see it all. You actually will get an opportunity to walk it. It's not all that far. It's, uh, it's pretty easy to do. And so it kind of helps set it in mind. So as we see all that, okay, we're familiar with the story. We've got Jesus coming in. Uh, we also have these crowds. Now, where do crowds come from? Where do all the crowds? Every time we see Jesus, right, it's, it should be something that we're used to seeing by now. There's always crowds around him. 
But John chapter 12 tells us specifically about these crowds. He lets us know why there were so many people coming down that road with him into Jerusalem. It says in John 12, verse 17 and 18, Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb, and raised him from the dead, bore witness. So for this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. So he's in Bethany. Remember what happened in Bethany. There's, there's two sisters and a brother that live there, right? Remember I told you he spent the Sabbath there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So, he's at their house. <clears throat> People here. Oh, he's here. People who were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so the crowd begins to gather around Mary and Martha's house and around where he is. So the next day, <clears throat> when he goes from there to Bethpage, there's a large crowd already with him. And that crowd that's already with him, already believes he's Messiah. That crowd already is followers. They're, they're wanting to follow Jesus. They're wanting to be where He is. And so they've gathered in that place. <clears throat> in John chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that He was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they may also see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So a lot of people wanted to see Lazarus. Is that the dude who was dead? Man, we want to we wanna see him. <clears throat> so now you have a mixture, mixture of group coming. You also have an attitude with the chief priests. Look in uh, John 12, verse 10. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. See that word also? Who else were they plotting to put to death? Oh, that's right. They were already plotting to put Jesus to death. Now they're also plotting to put Lazarus to death. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. So a lot of the people who are following him, they're believers. They're they're trusting their their hearts and lives to to Jesus whom they see as their messiah maybe they believe he's going to set up his throne as he comes into Jerusalem but that's where the crowd starts and they gather around him around him and Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably all together at that time John 12 also tells us about the Pharisees in John 12 verse 19 it says the Pharisees therefore said among themselves you see You are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So what's that tell us about the crowd? Big crowd, right? No matter how much they try to put the crowd down and to say, no, no, people see in Jesus the Messiah this, this innate thing. People want to be with him. They want to follow Him. They want to leave everything in their lives behind just so that they can be where He is. And so the the crowd grows and the crowd follows. Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 19, some of the Pharisees called to Him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So is He telling them to rebuke? Rebuke all these people who are around you. Not the twelve. It's all of those who are following Him from Bethany through Bethpage into Jerusalem. Rebuke them. And he said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, just hold on to that thought for a moment. Why every other day does Jesus say, be quiet? And on this day, when they tell him, tell your people to be quiet, he says, no. If this day, on this day, if I told them to be quiet, the rocks would cry out. There's something special about that day, right? 
There's something important about that day. What about the city of Jerusalem? Now, from the city of Jerusalem, remember, you can see them winding down the Mount of Olives. You can hear them. You can see what's going on. When you go, you'll go, oh yeah, I get what Jackie's talking about. Look at that. That's, that's, that's not that far away. I always thought it was, there's this greater distance, but it's not. So here they come down the Mount of Olives. It says, when he had come into Jerusalem, in Matthew 21 verse 10, when he had come into Jerusalem, <coughs> all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So it's not Jerusalem. What I want you to see is not Jerusalem going out to Jesus. It's Jesus. Where was he most popular at? The area of the Decapolis, the area of Galilee, right? He always had multitudes around him, following him. Then he goes to Bethany, and, and those multitudes who followed him to Bethany, that, that, that receive him as Messiah at Bethany, they're saying, oh man, this is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead, so it swells even greater. And they walk with him the two miles to Jerusalem. And as they're walking, the Bible tells us that they're singing songs of ascent from the Psalms. We'll see some of those in just a moment. But what about Jesus? What's Jesus thinking? We see that in Luke 19, <clears throat> verses 41 and 44. It says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, specific time, specific day, specific moment, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. And they will level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Luke 19, Jesus, as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, he weeps over the city because they don't know the day that the Lord has made. They sang the songs about it. They were a part of the feast and the celebrations for it. But they didn't know about it. You remember when the Magi, the wise men, they came to Herod and they asked him, uh, where's the Messiah to be born? Did you not see this star in the sky? And he had to go to his wise men and they had to go search the scriptures. They didn't just know. Don't you think if you were looking for a, a deliverer since the beginning of your history, you might know where he's going to be born? What if the Bible told you what day he was going to be in Jerusalem? Would you know that? Would it matter? Or would life just roll on and all of a sudden we would separate our our secular lives from our religious life. And our religious life, that just becomes a day where we punch a card. And the secular life, that's where we live our life. And so the majority of our life, six days out of the week, we don't even give it a second thought. <clears throat> On the seventh day, if for some reason, when they would gather together in synagogue together and read the scripture, it come up, maybe they would talk about it. But for the most part, they're just marking time, living life. And the reality of following Jesus Christ hadn't hit a fevered pitch for them. It didn't matter. That's why they didn't know. They were just living their life. In Daniel chapter 9, 
<clears throat> there's an incredible prophecy. I think we talked about it last Palm Sunday or maybe the Palm Sunday before. It's called the 70 weeks of Daniel. There are 70 Shabuim. Sabuim, 77s are determined for your people. Uh, the word is very similar to the word decade for us. A lot of things we build off of tens, right? Well, for the Hebrew mind, you build everything off of sevens. If you look at their numbers, everything's at seven. Seven's their thing. Seven days in a week, they just have this thing put together at seven. So when they would talk about, rather than decades, they would talk about sevens. Shabuim. Seventy-sevens are determined for your people. Daniel chapter 9 said. And there's an interesting couple of verses. In Daniel 9 verse 25, this is what he says. Know therefore. So he's requiring them to understand, right? Know therefore and understand. That from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven sevens, 62 sevens. There'll be seven, seven, sixty-two, sevens. And then he tells us why it's divided in the next phrase. In the next phrase of the verse, it says <clears throat> that the street will be built again in the wall. The street and the wall took forty-nine years. That's why seven sevens. So from the going forth to rebuild Jerusalem, that decree came from Artaxerxes, March fourteenth, four forty-five B.C. Sixty-nine sevens from that day till Messiah the Prince. If you knew God gave you an exact date when He was going to show up, when you were going to see His face, would you be ready? Well, He he laid it out. I understand that it's somewhat complicated. It's really complicated for you and I to look back and understand the the mind that they had then. But for them, Daniel 9 wasn't so complicated. It was much easier for them to read. What does it say about Messiah? What will happen to Him? After he comes, after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be karat, cut off. He'll be put to death. He will go to trial and be put to death. That's what that Hebrew word means. <clears throat> so he's going to be put to death, but it won't be because of himself. It's not for him. And the people of the prince who is to come, the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city. Now we know in 70 AD the city was destroyed. Who destroyed it? Rome. Right? So the people of the prince who is to come, a lot of people see the prince who is to come as that one day future being everyone thinks is Obama, but probably isn't, the Antichrist. <clears throat> and when we look for the when we look at the scripture and what the scripture talks about the Antichrist, it says here that he's going to be somehow tied to the Roman Empire. Now the Roman Empire is a big empire, okay? So there's lots of space <clears throat> for the Antichrist to come from. But it says the prince of the people who are going to come and destroy the city. <coughs> he said, the, the, and the people and the prince uh, who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So they're going to destroy the temple. Right? We know that happened. Titus, Vespasian, destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And the end of it will be a flood. A dispersion. There will be a flood. Dispersion. What happens to a flood? Everything gets washed away. Where did the Jews go? Everywhere. Everywhere. They're all over the place. What did Jesus say in Luke 19? If you had known on this your day, the things that make for your peace, uh, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Now they're hidden from your eyes. You can't see them. You didn't know. So he wept as Jesus is coming into the city. 
What about the disciples? What's their attitude? I love it because in John 12, verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand. That's shocking, right? His disciples are just like us. It's like his disciples, it says they didn't get it. They're like, they're kind of walking around like, oh, what in the world is going on? Look at all these people. We're headed to Jerusalem, which is probably a bad idea. Because <coughs> we know the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees want to kill him. <coughs> but we got all these people. I don't know what's going to happen. The Bible says in John twelve sixteen they they didn't know what was going on at first. When did they figure it out? When he was glorified, when Jesus rose from the dead. And then they go, oh, I get it. I get it. So the disciples are confused. Jesus is weeping. The people are gathered because of the incredible miracles that they had around him. There's a lot of chaos, a lot of craziness going on. And he comes by Bethpage. As he comes by Bethpage, he gives two disciples a job, right? He gives two disciples a job. says in in verse 2, he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has sat. You ever looked at an animal and said, no one has ever sat on that before? How do you know? How do you know I'm looking for a colt? How do I know no one has sat on it? He has bore no burden before. <coughs> He's a baby donkey. A baby, you know them them little donkeys can carry like five times their weight? That's crazy. You ever seen pictures like in the magazines that a donkey got humongous piles of baskets all over him? <coughs> it takes a guy walking next to him to balance it on him, you know, so it don't all fall off. You ever seen that and felt bad for the donkey? Uh, I would be really happy to have a donkey like that, to be honest. Somebody can carry all that? I wonder if you could fit a whole elk on a donkey. Hmm. <laughs> a couple cases of monster, maybe. Okay. So here's what we know. There's two animals, right? There's two animals. A donkey and a colt. A mother and a child. Jesus says, loose them. Bring them to me. You'll see a colt next to her. So we know it was the mother there <coughs> with her young. No one had ever rode, no one had ever ridden, no one had been on it. Was was just a young donkey. He calls for them to bring both of them. He sends two disciples. And nowhere in the Bible does he name who the two disciples are. But whenever something like this goes on, I just gotta figure Peter's one of them. Well, somebody told Mark, right? They say Mark is Peter's gospel, so I'm going to go with the whole idea that, yeah, it was Peter. And who else would go and say to somebody, hey, uh, the Lord needs your donkey. Thanks, ma'am. You know <clears throat> Peter's up for that job, right? He's always ready to, to have something to say. So, one of them's Peter. We don't know who the other one is. They go, but what else do we see in this story? Listen, the omniscience of Jesus. A proof of deity. What do I mean? He told the disciples what they were going to find. He wasn't there. He said, go to Bethpage, you're going to find a donkey, a mama donkey tied to a tree with its colt. Gather both of them together. 
And if anyone says, what are you doing? Just tell them the Lord has need of it and we'll bring them back. How does he know that? So when they go, what happens? Exactly what Jesus said. How does he know that? The long word is omniscience. He knows. He's God. So he is aware of what's going on around him. He's aware of all the pieces for it. Why did they take it? The Bible says the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need. Why does the Lord have need? To fulfill prophecy. Zechariah 9.9. You guys are familiar with it. It always comes out at Christmas time. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and is having salvation. And riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, way back, Zechariah had said, when Messiah comes, he's going to have two animals, the mother and the colt. He's going to have them together, but he's going to ride on the colt. He's going to ride on the one no one had ever ridden on before. Fulfilling the prophecy laid out for us in Zechariah 9.9. And there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of points about that prophecy. One... It's an attitude of humility. Right? Most of the time, kings, when Titus went back to Rome after conquering Jerusalem, guess what he was riding? Oh, you won't have to guess very hard, right? Big old white horse. You want everybody to see you. You have this big old parade and you're so proud. But that wasn't Jesus. At least not this time. This time he comes humbly. Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 8 tell us that we have a humble king who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. And taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance like a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. What had Jesus come to do? He had come to bear our burdens. And he looked for an animal that had never bore a burden. I wonder if there's any significance to that. Well, there's a couple of places in the Old Testament that I think give uh, a little highlight to the reason Jesus is looking and the way he's looking. In Numbers 19.2, it says, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you the red heifer without blemish, in which there is no uh, defect, and on which a yoke has never come. So when you bring the red heifer in for preparation, uh, you bring the red heifer who has never bore a burden. Wasn't to have bore a burden. Why? Because it's about to bear a burden. It says in Deuteronomy 21.3, And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has never pulled a yoke. That was the qualification for sacrifice. It was coming to bear the burden of another sin. So if it was coming to bear the burden of another sin, it was not to have bore any other burden. So Jesus chooses a donkey that had never bore any burden to carry the burden bearer into Jerusalem. And when you think about it, 
If you, if you just flip in your Bibles, Isaiah 53, because there's so many places <coughs> where Isaiah 53 and throughout the Old Testament talks about the Messiah bearing our burdens. Look what it says, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely He, Messiah, has borne our griefs. So what is it that He's come to bear? The burden bearer. The ultimate burden bearer. Jesus Christ. He came to bear our griefs and our sorrows. Anybody got any of those? Jesus came to bear our grief and our sorrow. And we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 6. In Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way. And so the Lord laid on Him. What? The iniquity of us all. So He's bearing our grief, our sorrow, and all our sin. Isaiah 53.11 He shall see the labor of His soul and be satisfied. And by His knowledge, my righteous servant, Messiah, shall justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. He's going to bear their sin. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to the death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. So we see that Jesus coming to be the great burden bearer, to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin, rides in on an animal who had never carried any burden. Symbolized in the Old Testament, as those animals that were being prepared or were qualified to be a sin offering, an offering for sin. So Jesus Christ coming riding in Psalm 55, 22, the scripture tells us to cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Cast your burden on the Lord. First Peter says, cast your care on him. Because He cares for you. See, Jesus Christ is our burden bearer. We, we, sometimes we miss that. And we think somehow we're supposed to carry it or we're able to carry it. And listen, the Word of God is very clear. You aren't able. You can't carry it. You can't carry your grief. You can't carry your sorrow. You can't carry your sin. We need a burden bearer. And our burden bearer is Jesus Christ, who rode into Jerusalem on an animal that had never carried any burden. And on that animal's back was the burden bearer for all mankind. For whosoever will. The one who came to be a sacrifice for sin for us all. In Mark 11 verse 7 it says that they brought the colt to Jesus. And they threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. And then many spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now we see this and we go, what's that all about? What does that mean? Why, why, why do they do that? But you know, everywhere in the Bible where something strange happens, somewhere else in the Bible, it's explained. That's the beauty of allowing the Bible to teach you what the Bible's trying to say. It doesn't require somebody to, to tell us what it means. All we've got to do is spend a little time and figure it out. It says in 2 Kings 9.13, The highest honor for the king, to honor your king, when he was named king, would be to take your cloak or your clothes and lay it out on the ground before him. When Jehu was named king of the northern kingdom, it says, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him, 
on the top of the steps and they blew the trumpets, shouted, Jehu is king. So it's a way, it's an action, it's an illustration that says, man, let me put down, symbolizing myself as you walk by. I am in submission to you. I am below you. You are my king. You are the authority in my life. And what about the, the, the palm branches? What's that all about? Well, it's a sign of rejoicing and joy. It was something that was a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. They would take branches together and they would wave them and they would rejoice and they would sing because they were so excited about it. You know what the Feast of Tabernacles? <clears throat> Every time I look at the Feast of Tabernacles, a lot of people think about how, <clears throat> wow, how people see the feasts of the Old Testament fulfilled in the life of Christ. Well, I see the Feast of Tabernacles fulfilled in His birth. Now, a lot of people don't agree with me, but I just got this thing where I come to the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John says the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. The Word became flesh, put on a tent, and lived with us. What did the people do during the Feast of Tabernacles? They moved out of their houses, they built a tent, and they moved into the tent for seven days to celebrate how God had been with them when they were in the wilderness. And I think it's a great picture of the condensation of God as He as He comes down out of heaven and puts on a tent and walks with us. He tabernacled with us. And part of that celebration, how God had been with Him and how God had carried Him through the wilderness. What is this world if it is not a wilderness? What is this place? It's a zoo, man. You Do you spend any time watching the news? You know... I gotta be honest. I, I I hate watching the news. I there's just something else somebody done. <coughs> Another way to 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 cause grief or share grief. I don't know. I still read it. I just don't watch it. But I look at it and I think, man, this place is a wilderness. So the Feast of Tabernacles to me was the the illustration, the point of that feast was to say one day God's going to come put on a tent for us and He's going to walk us through the wilderness. He's going to walk us through the wilderness right up to the place where He bears our grief, our sorrow, and our sin. And it should bring about joy when that occurs. And what, what, how they would express that joy in the Feast of Tabernacles was waving the palm branches. Look at Leviticus 23.40. And you will take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So you got them waving these branches. Now for them this wasn't weird. It was something that they did every year. It was one of the feasts they were required to do every year. Every male was to be there. And they would wave these branches and they would shout for joy at God's deliverance. They understood what it meant to throw their clothes down. To say, man, this is our king. This is our king. And I want him to know, you're my king. So I throw my, my clothes down in front of him as, he, as Jehu goes up the steps. Or as Jesus, the burden bearer, passes by and heads to Jerusalem where he will be the sin sacrifice for mankind. So we see these things coming out before us. Next we see the words of the crowd. Look at verse 9, Mark 11, verse 9. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. 
that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. The words that they're shouting are words of a psalm. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 26 say this, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner. Peter's going to apply that later on to Jesus Christ himself. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray. You guys know what save now means? Oh, you know how to say save now in Hebrew? Hosanna. So now when we sing songs that say Hosanna, you'll know what you're saying. It's like lifting your head to heaven and saying, save now. Save now. Hosanna. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. First, they are praising him for his plan of salvation. They, they cry out, Hosanna. Save now. They're looking for the blessing of God's salvation. Now maybe their idea of God's salvation and God's concept of salvation was different. But it doesn't change the fact that it is worked. And it is accomplished. So they're praising the plan of salvation. They're, they're praising His person. That He's God in the flesh. Blessed is He who comes in the name. Who comes in the name. In the name. The, the concept of coming in someone's name means that you bear their character. If someone spoke to you in the name of the king, it was as though the king was standing before you. The same way with Jesus Christ. He comes in the name of the king. He is the king of kings, Lord of lords, God Almighty in the flesh. In the beginning was the word, word was with God, the word was God. Pretty much settles it for me. The Word was God. God in the flesh. They're praising Him for His person. You're the one who comes in the character of God Almighty. The Bible tells that God is invisible. No man has seen God at any time. Nobody has ever seen God the Father. Nobody has ever seen God the Father. And you're going to say, Jackie, what are you talking about? Lots of uh, stories in the Old Testament where people saw God. You're right. You know, right after it says, no one has seen God at any time, you know what it says next? The only begotten of the Father. The one full of grace and truth. He, Jesus Christ, reveals God to us. So when they saw God in the Old Testament, they saw Jesus Christ. God is a spirit. You don't have eyes that can see God. Any more than you have eyes that can see the Holy Spirit. But you can see Jesus Christ. Because He... Is in the flesh. Forever. It's not some kind of limited deal when he came. He forever will bear the marks in his glorified body of his sacrifice for you and I. He is king of kings and lord of lords. God almighty in the flesh. They praise him for his purpose to establish the kingdom. They say, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is our the kingdom. What kingdom? Jesus came to, to instill a kingdom. <clears throat> this is, kind of gets confusing for us. But did he do it? Uh, yeah. 
What, what did Jesus ever do start that didn't happen? When God said, let there be light, was it 10,000 years before light came? What's the Bible say? Let there be light and light was. That's pretty quick. Right? Jesus said, in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to me. You guys remember the phrase? Where? In heaven. Oh, and on earth? So did he establish a kingdom or not? Yeah, the kingdom's here. And we, the church, are functioning within that kingdom that he established. And we are waiting for what? The return of the king? The return of the king? Man, all the while Jesus was walking around, he said, the kingdom of God is here. If I cast out demons by by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He came to establish the kingdom. The kingdom is here. The recognizing of the nation of Israel to their king, that hasn't happened yet. But the Bible says one day they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn as one mourns for an only son. As they look at Jesus Christ, our burden bearer, king of kings, lord of lords. Come to set his kingdom right. So they praise him for his purpose. And they praise him for his position over Everything. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. It's a neuter plural. It means it's a place. Whenever that word is used, the way it's used, it's always talking about heaven. Save now. Hosanna in the highest. They're calling on the abode of God, the place of God, the position of God over all things. And they're saying, save now, save us, save us. As Jesus is walking to Jerusalem... On an animal that has never bore a burden. As the chief burden bearer of all mankind. As he goes to bear our grief, our sorrow, and our sin. Four days from the cross. Seven days from resurrection. He's on his way. John 3.31 As Jesus is sharing with Nick at night says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. Where did Jesus come from? Heaven. God in the flesh. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. He put on this tent. And He put it on forever. So He could bear our burdens. And all of that's happening on Palm Sunday. As Jesus is coming down and people are following Him and they're proclaiming that that they're, they're praising Him for who He is. They're praising Him for what He's doing. They're praising Him for the kingdom. And overall and through all, as Jesus is coming through, the establishment of the kingdom is wrought, is accomplished by His bearing our grief and sorrow. By Him making a way through the wilderness for you and me. I don't know if you found your way through the wilderness yet. But Jesus Christ made a way. And all we have to do is what he told every other disciple to do all his ministry long. What did he say? Come, follow me. I made a way. So you could be reconciled to God. So your sins could be set aside. Jesus Christ made a way. And all of that is signified by the events going on around him.
on Palm Sunday. He came to bear it. Some of you here this morning are still running around bearing your own. Still bearing your own. Stop. Why do you want to carry that? You were not made to carry that. Jesus Christ is. He is able. Cast your cares on Him, for He cares for you. What do I cast? My grief, my sorrow, my sin. What does He do? He makes me right with God, so that I can have a restored relationship that was broken from the fall of mankind. He does it all. I just got to put my hand in His, fall down before Him, lay down my clothes before Him and say, He's my King. I'm submitted to Him. And rejoice for the opportunity to be in His presence for all He has done for me. It's incredible when we take the time to consider all that Christ has done for us. And all so that you could be eternally His. But He has a purpose for us, right? All authority is given in heaven and on earth. So it's all mine. Earth is mine. Heaven's mine. What's he say next? Go, therefore. Go. Well, before you go to Africa, just cross the street and tell your neighbor. Just tell somebody who your king is and why you have joy. He is worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.